Are you looking to connect with a diverse audience of developers? Look no further. You can partner with us here at the Code Newbie Podcast, and we'll help get your message out to our incredible listeners in an ad just like this one, led by me, your host. Contact us by emailing sponsors at codenewbie.org. Welcome to the Code Newbie Podcast, where we talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and before we kick off the show, I want to tell you about our incredible sponsors. Today on the show, we are continuing our conversation with open source contributor, developer, co-creator of Ember.js, founder and CTO of Tilda, Yehuda Katz. This is part two of our two-part interview with Yehuda, so enjoy. So when we're comparing different tools, because I know there's there's so many options now and you know, there's the latest framework always popping up and for a lot of code newbies, there's a, an issue of just analysis paralysis, right? Figuring out what should I learn? When should I learn it? How do I learn it? So when considering something like Ember, what are the different situations where it would make sense for a newer programmer to dig in and learn and use it, whether it's for work or for a personal project? So good question. I want to say a thing first, which is, I totally, it definitely feels like there's a bazillion framework coming out all the time. Uh, a thing that I like to do as a person who's been doing this for a long time is I like to just exclude from my analysis anything that's less than a year old. Hmm, that's a good rule. That doesn't just mean, that's not just because I'm waiting for things to become mature and by the, eventually things become mature. It's because the young generation of new things, almost all of those things don't make it a year long. So mm-hmm. a lot of the feeling that people have about there being so many things is just based on seeing a lot of things that don't make it. So just don't include those things and you will, the number, if you think about how many frameworks there actually are that have made it, it's like Ember, Angular, React, Backbone, I would say at this point has not made it in the long haul. Uh, Knockout is still a popular thing. Um, there's Vue.js, Mithril, like there's some very minor ones that a small number of people use, but have made it. Um, but that's like a much smaller set of things than I'm, I'm, I'm sure someone out there is like, I've been around for a while. Uh, sadly, if you were around for a long time and I don't remember you and most people don't remember you, probably also a new developer should not include that. But um, of course, there's things like Elm, by the way, which are other programming languages in JavaScript, which for sure a new developer should not consider. I'm not saying unless they are considering becoming an Elm programmer, which is usually not the mental model people have. So um, anyway, the point that I'm making is I think there's not that many things in the first place. Um but I think the way that I would think about it is that there's a difference. There are different kinds of environments that you might be in. If, if the environment that you're in is that you have a large Rails application or Java application or something already that you have been hired onto the team of or, or that you're for some reason connected to and your task is to add interactivity, then you for sure want to optimize your efforts for things that are highly interoperable with that environment. And um, Angular 1, React originally Backbone, are things that were highly optimized for that environment. And because there are so many apps like that, those things become very popular. And I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually, that's just fine. That is, uh, jQuery was the original thing that was very popular in that space. And React and Angular and Backbone, Angular 1 and Backbone have become things that are very popular for that environment these days. And I think that's fine. Um, there's a completely other kind of app that unfortunately does not 
you're asking me a question that is like a, be, a question that has bedeviled me for years because for <laughs> some reason the JavaScript ecosystem does not divide these things into two things, even though they obviously are. So there's another kind of app, which is I'm actually building an app for the first time, Heroku dashboard or bustle.com, right? This is an app I'm building for the first time. For some reason, I have decided that I would like it to be client-side driven. I actually do not want to debate right now whether somebody should do that or not, but people have, many people have already decided that that is what they want to do mm-hmm. for some reason. And in that case, you should optimize your, you should optimize what you're doing for, uh, tools that are designed to encapsulate as much of that question as possible. So, uh, for example, you're going to need a router, right? You're, you're not actually building a client, a server-side web app with interactive spruce up. You're building a cl- whole client-side application, so you need a router. Now, everybody has a router. So, uh, Angular 1 had a router and it had a plugin called Angular UI that had a router. React has a few routers that you can plug in. And those are totally valid things to, to use. But what you should do if you're trying to analyze it is not React versus Ember. You should say React plus Webpack plus React Router plus Redux versus Ember. And I think that's a fine analysis and you might choose to use the React one, but you should also look at like how big is the community of that, right? So Ember, Ember is a community that's for building an application like bustle.com or the uh, Heroku dashboard and Every single person who uses Ember or built a plugin for Ember is building something for that. So 100% of the time, if you install a plugin for Ember, it is not going to accidentally forget to care about routing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now there, it is also true that if somebody builds a plugin for React plus React Router plus Webpack, another exa- Webpack is a good example of where nobody ever forgets that if, for example, you're building an emoji add-on, you have to somehow get the emoji font or... Um, set of images into your production payload because Ember has an Ember CLI. And if you install an emoji add-on, of course, people know that those assets have to get somewhere. Whereas it's quite possible for you to install an emoji React add-on and it just doesn't happen to care about that detail. And it's like, please remember how to set that up in Webpack. I'm not saying that's just fine. That's a totally fine thing to do. And I think that's a good, you can, I will not be sad if someone chooses to use that particular suite of technologies. It's fine. But I think that that is the analysis that people should do. The analysis of Ember is an, uh, an ecosystem of people who are all building applications that need all those tools. And we, if you want to compare that to React or Angular, uh, then you should look at the whole set of things that you have to put together to produce it. Now, it's also a valid thing for someone to say, I want to be able to make those choices on my own. And I think a lot of people actually think that, and that's fine. Uh, the cost of that, of course, is that you have to Things like, let me make sure my emoji images are actually in the payload are something that you have to do yourself unless there is something for the exact combo of things that you happen to have chosen. And again, there's, a, there's still nothing wrong with any of that. Um, but it just, it's just a thing that you should think about. I think what a lot of people often will do is they'll look at just React. They'll say React seems simpler, which it is because it's doing less things. And then they'll say, oh, I'll just figure out those things when I need them. And what I'm saying is, if you are building Heroku dashboard, you already need them. It's like mm. part of the process. It's like you're going to need them. So uh, the thing that's nice about Ember is that Ember folds in all those things into a set of things that you don't have to learn. But the core experience of learning Ember is a little more complicated because every single thing that you ever do includes all those things, right? So you don't have to learn how to copy emoji, but you do have to learn how to use Ember add-ons because Ember add-ons are the thing that already knows that you have to copy emoji. Yeah, so there's more to learn up front. I, I actually, I don't agree that there's necessarily more to learn up front. I think we mm-hmm. do a good job of folding in. So for example, when you make a new Ember app, Ember new whatever creates a new Ember app. 
And I don't think that that's a very complicated thing to learn. It's less about it being more to learn and more that you feel like you're using an SDK, right? You don't mm. feel like you're learning, you're using a primitive that feels like the web. You feel like you're doing using something that is quote unquote Ember, not quote unquote just JavaScript. And what I'm saying is there's no actual way to build an app that is quote unquote just JavaScript. You end up having to put the things together yourself. And the reason why Ember feels like it's Ember is because all things that are Ember are already encap- encapsulate all these questions. So how do you build a web framework? What does that even mean? So what it, it, there, it actually has meant different things over time. So what it meant when Rails was being built, before, what it meant before Rails was being built was basically a, a architecture thing, like go get the Ganga 4 book, pick what patterns that you thought were interesting, and then try to put those patterns into a library. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that sucked. Every, I think everyone agrees that sucked. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't sound like fun. No, it was terrible. Uh, I'm sure people who worked back then think it was great, but the experience of using it was too much. You had to learn too many computer science things in order to be productive. Um, so people who already knew the computers, this is the curse of knowledge problem again. People who already knew the computer science things were quite good at using them, and they were like, why does anybody not like this? But then many, many people tried to use it and could not find themselves being productive. Uh, what Rails basically did was it said what it is to use build a framework is to put together a set of tools that covers the whole set of things that happen when you try to build an application of this kind in this domain. So in this case, it was a server-side web frame or web application. And what it means is that it covers without you having to learn all the details. So you learn a higher level thing, which is how to use Rails. And then that automatically gives you like 5,000 things that you would have otherwise had to learn separately. So it's, you learn like, 20 things and you get 5,000 things. Now the problem with Rails and people observe this and still believe it to be true about frameworks today, and this is part of why I got involved in Rails in the first place, was that it is true that you learned 20 things and it gave you 5,000 things, but those 5,000 things were a particular set of the 5,000 things that was true like 90% of the time, but in every app, there were some cases where that didn't end up working out for you. So for example, the first app I worked on that was a production app was called Procore, which was a construction management app. It was heavily email-based. We, we needed to give some people faxes even and black, support their Blackberries because that's how contractors worked back then and maybe today. Um, it was heavily email-based and Action Mailer at the time, which was Rails' mailing system, was just not great. So we ended up having to fork Action Mailer, make our own thing that was very unpleasant and it effectively required a full fork to do it correctly. And that meant we could never upgrade and things like that. So uh, one of the thing that I cared about at the time and, and brought to Rails 3 when I started working on Rails 3 was... The correct thing is not that you learn 20 things and that just gives you some random set of 5,000 things. The correct thing is that you take the 5,000 things and you group them together in a set of layers and the top layer is the 20 things, right? So uh, there's 20 things. Each one of those 20 things um, explodes into like 100 things and each one of those 100 things explodes into 1,000 things. Mm-hmm. I know the math didn't work out there, but <laughs> let's pretend. Yes. So at any point, if you don't like the exact detail of the thing you're doing, there's probably there's at least one intermediate layer that you could lean on that will still explode into more sets of things. And um, in, in the worst case scenario, you just have to go down all the way to the bottom, but then you aren't like breaking all the other things. And the, the exact details of even how to do that is non-trivial. But the point is that one, if you think that that's what you're doing, and I think these days, anybody who's building a framework thinks that that's what they're doing. It used to be, so Rails introduced the concept of convention over configuration. And back then that meant... The, you have 20 things and a bunch of knobs, configuration knobs on the 20 things. 
these days what it means is 20 things that are implemented in terms of a lower level thing. Um, now, you, again, you don't always do it right. There's a high, frameworks have a high value on shipping and solving real problems. So quite often you will ship something that isn't perfectly factored, perfectly described in terms of a lower level thing. But everybody thinks that that's what we're doing. So what that means in practice is that the idea, people have the idea in their head of effectively Rails 2, the thing that I couldn't use at Procore. Um, and of, like my entire career since then has been trying to figure out a better version of that story. A story that still is empowering and enabling for new people and not just new people, right? The, the thing that's, that I like to think about about new people is that new people just don't have any cognitive resources available. Uh, they're learning. So all their cognitive resources are spent learning. They have no cognitive resources available for other things. Um, so that m- makes them very good candidates for things that you learn a thing and it gives you a lot of other things. But almost anybody, like when I'm working on Skylight, I am actually spending most of my time thinking about how the design works about how to vertically center. I don't mean how to vertically center, but like, let me make sure this thing is actually vertically centered. Uh, what does that mean? In this font, it means this thing, right? Uh, let me keep an eye on that. So I have cognitive resources being spent on um, very uh, on, on very designy questions on how does it feel to use this? How does a user feel when they're using my, tool, my, my uh, app? And I don't have a lot of cognitive resources left for thinking about um, how to compose my libraries, how to remember that I copied this file into this other destination. Um, and in that sense, I'm a lot like a beginner, right? I have a lot of the same constraints because I just don't have, I'm spending all the cognitive resources that, that I have on my product. And, um, the only way that I know how to deal with that is to put on my framework development hat when I work on Ember and go spend all of my cognitive resources then on building abstractions, on building the 20 things so that when I, my product hat is on, I can be, I can basically become a beginner again. And I don't think there's an alternative. I, I think I'm as a person who has built some apps now and who has worked with a lot of other teams, I don't think the the alternative people who spend all their time thinking about, you know, is this a functional program or not? Where is my mutable state, whatever. People who spend a lot of time thinking about that. And those things matter. I'm not trying to say those things don't matter. But people who have to spend their programming time thinking about it are people who are not spending their programming time thinking about their product. I really appreciate that you value those two things so highly. You know, I think that a lot of programmers value the programming part and the design and the product as a whole takes a back seat. And it's really nice to hear that someone like you understands the importance of all those other things and the feelings and the experiences that go into it and not just the resulting code. Yep. I, it's, it's certainly something that comes from having not failed to be a programmer for a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Right? I, <laughs> I basically just know what it is. It's like it took me so many like decades, literally, to become a programmer that I just, it's easy for me to empathize with somebody who's like, I don't understand this. So when you first created Ember, did you mean for it to be this big thing that a lot of companies like Discourse, uh, I think I saw Chipotle even (laughs) uses Ember? Were you expecting it to get to that point? Or what were your expectations when you first released it? So I certainly don't build things that I don't want to get adoption. Um, but I, I would say that my main goal at the time, and, and this can, so my goals have not changed actually from basically from the time that I started working on Merb, which became uh, part of Rails 3 eventually. My goals are to make the DHH philosophy of conventional reconfiguration a palatable and acceptable thing for as many people as possible. And that means, that means, um, evangelizing tools that are, uh, actually, let me, let me take a step back. So DHH said a thing a few years ago about easy bake ovens, that beginners shouldn't use easy bake ovens. Beginners should use the real thing. 
And I totally agree with that. And th- what he meant by that, what he explicitly meant by that, was that we shouldn't cordon off the universe into beginner developers and advanced developers. We should create tools that are good for beginners and advanced developers alike. And I've thought about this a lot. A part of the reason for that is that um, beginners, of course, have to ask questions on Stack Overflow. And of course, there's no dividing line. There's no point where a beginner magically gets to check the Boolean checkbox of I'm now an advanced developer, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and it changes for, it changes for a lot of topics, right? So you might be now very comfortable with writing a controller, but be a total noob about active record, or you might be very, very comfortable with object orientation and be a total noob about how blocks work in Ruby, right? The, the things change at a sort of random rate and there's no even, there's not even an, a fixed ordering per programmer how that happens, right? So, People have to go ask questions on Stack Overflow. They're going to ask a question. And if the answer requires you to answer first, am I in noob mode or advanced mode? First of all, nobody ever asked that question. So even though people believe it, people actually believe it exists in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ecosystems, but nobody ever asks it. So even if you think it exists, it doesn't. But second of all, if you have to ask it, what that means is that you have to switch modes between let me give you the real answer or let me give you the answer that I'm supposed to give to new developers. And and I just don't think that works out. I think you have to build tools that um, new developers are able to use. And then the things that you tell them they're supposed to do in response to problems are the same things that you would tell an advanced developer. Part of that is that new developers sometimes get hired to work on projects where advanced developers also work. Mm, right. It's just, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't, I just honestly don't even understand. So I, I'm saying this and now it probably sounds obvious to you and listeners that what I'm saying is true, but it is also a massively common belief that this exists. So, so I think part of it is basically, I think the answer to that problem is the convention over configuration story, which is that you build a thing that is 20. Uh, and uh, of course, another part of that is that, as I said before, you're trying to usually build your app, which means you're not actually thinking about all the things when you're trying to figure out what is the, in, like, what does the hover effect look like here? Right. You cannot actually think about both those things at the same time. So, um, I think the only real answer here is to build something that is conventional at the top and that if you discover that there's something that doesn't work, that the, that the quote unquote advanced answer is always drill down a layer, right? So if the answer is, the answer is either the, the tool gives you a thing here or you are supposed to use the next layer down. And then what that means is that beginner, quote unquote beginner developers who encounter the limits of the top layer always 100% of the time are taught, okay, you now have a learning experience to do, which is learn the next layer. And that means that when you're learning the next layer, if you have a question about that, you're asking it in terms of exactly the same thing as the advanced developer. And I think that that just works out. Um, Hmm. Again, you don't always get the details. Nobody can build perfect software, so you don't always get the details right. But if you're trying to do that, I think that ends up working out. So my goal since, you know, 2008, approximately, has been to build tools that fit this philosophy. And what I have noticed is that in 2016, uh, I noticed it back then, but it's become worse and worse and worse. Increasingly, people in the world think that the correct answer is that everyone should learn tiny little primitives and put them together themselves. And I just don't think that... I don't, I'm not against that philosophy in principle. I think some people can use that if that's what they want. But there is so little of the alternative that is even given uh, a seat at the table, right? In other words, if you build, it is an acceptable slur in the programming community to say monolithic or magic. Ma- the word magic is allowed to <laughs> yes. be so like, and all magic means is abstraction. There was somebody who wrote a blog post recently where they said, um, all this is doing is hiding the complexity behind the convenient interface. And I said, that's our job. That's literally our job. Mm. I tweeted that, mm-hmm. right? So, so um, I, I just think there's so, it, it's actually acceptable for you to write that in public to say, all you're doing is hiding complexity behind a nice interface. That is, if someone is allowed to say that and you will, people will believe that they have attacked something. That's such a common thing 
that I, I see my job and I see, and I think anybody else who's listening who works on frameworks, our job is to actually show the world that that is not the only option. And I, and I think it's just, uh, and I'm saying this as, I'm saying this not as a retcon. Um, this is legitimately how I have felt about my job for a long time is if, if Ember didn't exist, what is the other options? Right. Mm-hmm. The other options are all, well, Angular 2 exists now, which is great. I'm actually very happy. Angular 2 is actually a framework. Um, but other than like before Angular 2, so this has been the case literally from the beginning of the current generation of JavaScript libraries. Ember is the only tool that exists that is not, please combine the things yourself. And so, so I think, unfortunately, like, I guess unfortunately or not, that's my job. So did I expect it to get adoption? I only expected it to get adoption insofar as I think it deserves to get, like, these things deserve to get adoption. I realize it's a hard battle because of the fact that the zeitgeist of programming is so, um, so focused on what is a like academic PL, academic programming language thing of, well, let's build the simplest possible elegant primitive and let people put it together in nice ways. It's so focused on that and so focused against let's build something that is empowering for as many people as possible that people can use as beginners and advanced people together. The, the, there's such a big divide between those things that I actually can't predict when I build something if it will be successful, but I always hope so. So when I think about building a product just with users, right, with potentially, with most likely non-technical users, that that already seems like a really big job, right? Trying to account for the use cases and the problems that they're interested in, making sure they have a good UX. When I think about building a framework and your users are developers who know some stuff, possibly know more than you about how they want it to work and how it should work, that seems, frankly, that seems terrifying. How did you... How do you break that down into manageable steps? Did you have a, a project plan, a timeline? How do you even begin to tackle such a, a massive mission? So I used to be much worse at it than I am now. So I can only say what I do now, which has worked quite well. And I um, also is almost identical to what the Rust project uses. Um, so I think, first of all, I sort of alluded to this before. The most important thing is to express clearly and repeatedly what the core values are of your project in as now, a lot of people don't want to do that because they, those things are exactly the things that create quote unquote religious wars. And that's fine. But I, what I have found is that if you state them clearly and repeatedly, the kinds of people who would want to have the religious war are not going to join your project in the first place. But if you instead try to avoid it by being, um, by not taking an opinion, but if you actually have an opinion, in other words, if you're like, oh, I don't want to have a fight about this, but you actually have an opinion, all that's going to happen is people will join your project because they think it doesn't take an opinion about the thing, and then you will disagree with those people and get into a fight with them, <laughs> right? So maybe that's why Ember... So Ember has decent adoption, as you have said. A thousand people came to our conference. I think we have a lot of users. But maybe the reason why it's not as popular as something like Angular or React is because we don't pretend to believe things that we don't believe. And I, Sorry, I, sh- I should be very clear. I'm not actually claim- making any claims about anybody doing anything malicious. I think it's reasonable for people to not want to get into fights about things. Mm-hmm. I think that's a reasonable thing. But if you if you try to say, uh, and, and, and to React's credit, there's a lot of things that they are quite opinionated and quite clear about. Um, but for example, they say they don't care about what build tools you use. It doesn't really matter. Or they say it's just fine if you use Ohm, which is the, the closure script thing. right? So there's a lot of things that they say they're agnostic about. And I think that's normally the way people in the micro movement talk. They say, oh, that's not my problem. That's your problem. You figure it out. If you actually have an opinion about it, which of course, in the case of Facebook, of course they have because they have an app and they use it. They built it with something. Um, if you actually have an opinion about that, then you're just creating a space for the exact religious wars. And I, I just want to be clear. 
Um, I was just a pretty sloppy with how I talk about other things. I don't, not really making a claim, a specific claim about any other framework. And I'm not, you should not take anything I just said to imply that I think you shouldn't use some other tool on those, on this basis. I'm just, I'm just saying, and you perhaps, for example, perhaps it may be the case that you could argue that React is quite clear about all their opinions. That's fine. I think that's good. They should do that. Um, what I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying is if you aren't clear for some reason, so you asked originally how you should, uh, how you build a framework. And again, I wasn't so good about at this earlier. I think it's quite important that you are just very clear about what the core values are and uh, across the entire spectrum of things that people in your ecosystem are doing. Um, and that, that, that means that you having a clear opinion about how, you know, build, how build tools work in Ember, what is the module story, how we think about um, new JavaScript features, right? These are all things that will, people will have to take an opinion about in their project. And it's not so much about avoiding bite shedding, although that is a nice side effect. It's more about keeping the community focused on the set of values that everyone agrees about. So, so that's one thing. Then the next thing is now, obviously the values don't actually give you an answer for any particular technical question because the technical questions are by definition difficult. So recently, but not that recently, we started, uh, so we do the six week release cycle, I think helps a lot, which is basically every six weeks we release a new version of Ember and a new version of the next beta. Um, so we release 1.6 and 1.7 beta at the same time. That's what I mean by that. We've done that since 1.0. Uh, we had thir- we had 1.13 and now we're up to 2.7, I think. So we've done a lot of releases. Um, Rust is up to 1.9 now, which is nine releases on the Rust schedule. Same story. And we got this from Chrome. And one of the nice things about this is that it always focuses everybody on shipping, right? So um, a lot of communities can take months and months and months of breaks where they're, you know, rejiggering something. And we don't, for example, the 2.6 release that we just shipped doesn't actually have any features in it. Um, it has a lot of, you know, internal tweaks, bug fixes, whatever has no features. And that's because we actually are working on some bigger picture things. Um, but the point is that the six-week release cycle is a good starting point to make people remember that the thing that we're trying to do all the time is shipping. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, there's, there's the real answer is we have this the RFC process. And the way the RFC process works is that anytime anybody wants to do anything that changes the, sh- the surface of Ember, there is a process where people submit an RFC. Um, it's actually probably worth uh, saying what the question... So the RFC is a template that has a bunch of questions on it that you have to answer mm-hmm. when you're trying to propose a new feature. Um, Ember and Rust have the same one, except for one interesting example, uh, one interesting case, which I'll talk about in a second, and that Rust is going to adopt soon. So the RFC template asks... You know, give me a, a short summary, a motivation. So like what use cases does it support and what is the expected outcome? Why are we doing it? Uh, detailed design that just tells you like what is in detail, what is, is the thing you're proposing? Um, but then we Ember added how we teach this. And the reason we added this section is because what we notice is that the people who get involved in the RFC process are usually pretty advanced users. And the terminology that they use is not actually the appropriate terminology for the wider ecosystem. So mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty important when you're being precise, right? So the, the tech, the terminology you use for maximum precision is not actually the terminology that you use to explain to a new user how to use the thing. So what we notice is that because of the fact that you're forced to use highly precise terminology when describing the semantics of something, but we didn't ever say what the other, what the real terminology is, the circle of users who are involved in the RFC process would go around and use the RFC terminology, and then that would become the official terminology because they're influencers huh. in the community. Interesting. Right? So that was bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we added how we teach this. And, and another nice thing about how we teach this is that it lets people who are not 
super advanced users participate, right? They can say, oh, I think you should not have thought it that way. It seems bad. As a user, I would not have found that, I would have found that confusing. Um, and it also gives leverage for people who care about teaching to say, I don't like this feature because I, the way you have described the teaching sounds bad. And I think it's probably too, you know, too costly to add to the programming model or something like that. And previously you had to like guess, right? So it basically forces people who are trying to add a new feature to at least put forward their optimistic projection of what it will look like as an addition to the current programming model. And because they're forced to be as optimistic as possible, people who are like, oh, that seems like too costly to add are able to say, that's too costly. Whereas before they would say that's too costly because speculation about how it would be taught. And then someone would say, no, that's not how I would teach. Mm -hmm. Right. So now you are basically forced to give the optimistic projection. <laughs> and the optimistic projection is something that a person who is nervous about the, you know, how, how big the shape of what it is that we're creating in total looks like, they can argue against it. And then we, importantly, we also have drawbacks and alternatives, which I got from Rust and I think is great, uh, which is basically, however optimistic you are about this feature, you always are required to enumerate things that are bad about it. Um, and also required to enumerate things that a reasonable person might think are good alternatives and why you have rejected them. Um, and the alternative section is important because it's people who think there are other alternatives, if you have not already enumerated them, will probably spend a lot of time talking about them. Um, and if they, if someone brings up an alternative you have not enumerated, it's probably a good, it's probably a sign that the RFC needs some rethinking, right? So basically the point is that this process allows people to, uh, you ask like, how does, like, how does one put together the system? This is actually a pretty simple, um, the process is easy to understand, but it has pretty significant, um, effects on how the, how this, the whole system works, uh, Specifically, it always it, one of the things that it does that's very nice is it prevents the core team, which in Ember's case is not at one company, but in some cases are, from making decisions as a group without ever saying in public what the reason is. So in Ember, that's just impossible because even core team members have to write RFCs that are as detailed as this and hmm. have to go through the exact same process. Interesting. And in Rust, which has most of its people at Mozilla, it has the same positive effect. So. Yeah, you've put you've clearly put a lot of thought into the process of things and being very aware of who are you possibly excluding, including how do you make people feel about being a part of the project. And that's that's awesome. That's really great to hear. Seems good. Mm -hmm. So what has been the hardest part of building Ember? Uh, there, there are basically two hard parts. Uh, the easy hard part is technical. Um, quite often, because we're trying to solve problems in a pretty universal way, and that means like covers 90% and then there's a nice layer underneath that other people can drill down into. The technical problem is usually quite hard. Um, so for example, right now we're working on or reshuffling the directory structure of Ember applications. And that is like the hardest project I've ever worked on in my life, even though the implementation is not very hard, but the and figuring out how to do something that satisfies all the constraints, but doesn't feel Baroque. Like mm -hmm. it feels natural and also satisfies the constraints at the same time is hard. Um, so that's hard. I think the, uh, an even harder thing than that is um, being very conscious all the time about how people interacting with the project feel. So so I, I talked about this a lot. I don't have to reiterate all the things I already said, but it's just really natural, especially on a bad day, if somebody comes into your project and starts complaining about something to tell them to shove off and... It's it's important not just to remember that you shouldn't do that, which I think is a good thing to remember, but 
I actually I find that a thing that I, I guess I talk to people about this and most people feel sad, right? So if you're if the way that you think about it is the rule is you are not allowed to say ni- not nice things to people and somebody is repeatedly throwing not nice things at you, it very rapidly becomes a very uh, painful process that just doesn't, it feels like trapped, right? It feels like I have no way out. This just sucks. I don't know what to do. My life is terrible. I should not be working on open source. And the thing that is hard to remember, but which makes this better, is it's hard to remember that the people who you're who are talking to you, who are faceless and sometimes don't even have avatars, but are just talking to you, are experiencing an actual thing in their life. The fact that they're talking to you on your bug tracker almost always means that they have already decided and invested in your project, right? So they have already put quite often put a thing into production, but occasionally have just invested into learning it. Right, but I've invested real time. Like, uh, for a lot of people, like almost everybody, actually taking a weekend to work on something is a highly expensive thing, right? So obviously, it's not like expensive on its own merits, but in terms of what else you might have been doing that weekend, could just be like I would have rather seen a movie, but it also could mean like I could have tried out React instead of Ember, right? So people have, and that's like the minimum amount of time you could possibly spend on something. So if someone's on your bug tracker, it means by definition they have already decided to invest a pretty significant amount of time. Oh, and of course, depending on how much like what your socioeconomic status is. And as I told you last time we talked, I grew up extremely poor and my socioeconomic status was bad. And so I still remember, like not only sometimes is there an opportunity cost if I wish I had seen a movie, sometimes the opportunity cost is like I could have had another shift in my job, Mm. right? So there's like all these things that are costs about using something. And that is the context that the person is coming from who is in your bug tracker. And... It, it's just important to remember that the reason they're complaining is because they are actually humans who are frustrated. And if you realize that and you, like, I always respond to these things trying to get at that. Like, what is frustrating you? What is the thing that is a problem? How, and I'm, I am not going to, like, I can be prickly online, just like every, online is, has a habit of making people prickly who are, who are at all in that, leaning in that direction. But I think it's good when people are, I'm saying it doesn't always come off perfectly in the way I interact online, but it's good in your own head to think about the fact that there's a human being on the other side who is frustrated and their frustration comes from the fact that they have already invested in your project and are in fact invested in its success. So you should try to think about, like, I think thinking about that actually makes there. So what happens is after you realize that that doesn't actually cause them to magically stop spewing vitriol at you, they will Mm -hmm. keep doing that. But it allows you to recast all that vitriol in terms of a thing that you, like, people have experiences in life, right? If you go to a, you know, you're on an airline and you show up and the person tells you, sorry, uh, you're, the plane isn't here right now. We go home and come back tomorrow, which happened to me one time. Or, mm-hmm. or you go to a, a store and you say, I would like a sandwich and you're, like, late for your job. And they say, no problem, I'll be here in five minutes. And then you're th- 30 minutes later, you're still waiting for it, right? These, things, these are experiences that everyone has. And you can get very upset. And that is usually the context in which someone is very upset on your bug tracker, except they're not a human being, so you cannot tell. And I think <laughs> it's good to remember that. And quite often, if you try, to, if you interact, like I, I've had zero experiences, actually, where if you interact with somebody online, assuming that, they don't eventually realize, oh, yes, indeed, I am just being upset for that reason. And this person is trying to help me. It's just that by the time, like if you think about that sandwich example, if an hour goes by and you're like very angry, it's actually pretty unlikely that them just saying they're sorry will help. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It would be yeah. like, I, if you were sorry, why would you not have already done something an hour ago? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, right. But, but, but there's actually a well known answer for this, which is the customer service pattern. Right. So just if you pretend as an, and I, I say this a lot. I, one of my rules is what would a customer service rep do? Right. You, ha- there's a rule huh. that you give people and the rule that you give people. I was, a, I worked at a movie theater for 650 an hour when I was in uh, college and the rule, they gave us a stack of drink tickets and they said, if anybody's ever angry, give them one of these. And then if they're really angry, uh, you can give them a free movie, but you have to consult the manager first. But feel, you feel free to always be nice and whatever. And they gave us the pattern. And that, that pattern is basically, the reason it exists in the world in customer service is because it basically works. So you, I think it's good to think, I think that's the right way to interact online. And it, in, it doesn't, I think the way, the way, if you think about it as, oh my God, this person is angry and I am required to be nice to them for no reason, of course that will feel annoying. People will panic and give up. But if you think about it in terms of there is an angry person who's angry for a real reason, their life sucks right now for some reason, and I am, they, they blame me. And you try to talk to them about it the way you would like to be talked to as another human being. Most of the time that works. And, mm-hmm. and it feels good. I think at least oh, for yeah. me, at least for me at the end of that conversation, I always feel good. Whereas mm-hmm. most people at the end of these conversations, if you are not being, the word empathy, of course, is too overloaded. But if you're not thinking about how other people are probably feeling and trying to interact with them in that way, you, usually you will end up feeling upset and you may end up having weeks and weeks and weeks of interactions that are very negative. You are very cognizant of other people's feelings and experiences it sounds like in many different aspects of your life and in code how has your upbringing and your socioeconomic status and being extremely poor as you described it how has that influenced the way that you interact with people and the way that you interact with other coders i can only guess i should be clear by the way when i say i was extremely poor there is a spectrum of poor there are many people who are were much poorer than i was um, what I mostly mean is that there's a specific line that you cross when you're poor, which is that sometimes you have to make a decision, a hard decision between things that most people will consider basic needs. So for example, a decision I had to make a lot was like, I only have $2. Should I go get a sandwich, a $2 sandwich, <laughs> which usually is not much, or should I walk home like for an hour or an hour and a half? And that decision is very difficult and a lot of people don't ever have to experience it because $2 is usually something that, at least for me right now, it's never a thing I don't have. And mm-hmm. for, mo- for most people, the, like, usually the government in our society is such that it's trying to prevent you from having to make that decision a lot. So it's, it, you have to be quite low in the, in the socioeconomic ordering to experience it on a regular basis. And if you experience it, I think it's a, a thing that you can't shake off over time. Like, as an adult, it's easy for me to remember what that felt like. Um, and I think, I think one of the main ways in which I, it changes my perspective on things is uh, a lot of people, it's very easy for people to say, and people do, um, uh, you should just X. You should just, why don't you learn that? Or please read the, someone once told me when I was starting to get involved in standards, please read the entire backlog of all the mailing lists uh, before you say anything else, <laughs> right? Which wow. could have been like years and years of mailing list entries. And uh, that's already a very silly thing to ever say to anybody. Um, but 
the the exact cost that people have to do things is hard to predict and it for, there could be a lot of reasons why people are not able to do the things you think are trivial um so i think so for a good example of this in general is uh if somebody already has a couple of jobs so i had a couple of jobs in college somebody already has a couple of jobs uh they have to really optimize their time for things that are probably going to pan out and it is already very hard to to optimize your time for things that are the future right so like going to a class is already hard to optimize for because you are literally deciding to go to a class instead of taking a shift at work so you already are going to like not be able to i didn't have a kid at the time i still don't but uh if you already have like oh now i ha- cannot give my child food or Frankly, I cannot pay my cell phone bill. Some people think, oh, you're poor. Obviously, if you have a cell phone, that's fine. Obviously, that's not true. And the decision to do something instead of paying your cell phone bill is still a hard decision that you have to make. Um, and so I think uh, it's important to realize that people who are already full up on responsibilities that are necessary to make basic amounts of money are going to be very, it's going to be hard for them to do trivial and unneeded things in order to get in, in order to hopefully get a better future. So I think, as I said to you, when we talked, I think community colleges are actually pretty optimized for trying to deal with this in the sense that community colleges already have quite good financial aid programs. Uh, the financial aid can often be used for life uh, living costs, and they're pretty optimized for vocational skills that are very likely to get you work. And then the schools themselves have pretty good work programs. So like when you graduate with a certificate or a two-year degree from a community college, there are a lot of systems already in place to help you find work. Um, there's already systems in place to help you hook into your welfare, food stamps, stuff like that. I think these things are good. But that's a very far cry from things like boot camps, but especially mm-hmm. from like someone is showing up in my open source project. Like imagine someone shows up in your open source project and they decided, oh, I've heard Ember is cool and I think it probably will get me a job, although I have no idea how. So let me learn Ember this weekend. <laughs> They learn Ember and then they show up and start saying they have confusion, but they happen to be, their personality makes them say a somewhat negative thing, right? You, obviously, it's not very useful. Like that person is already taking a massive risk to try to learn Ember. There's really, it would be very bad if you were like, oh, why don't you just learn it yourself? Like, mm-hmm. please go learn JavaScript before you come back here. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> right? So, so I think it's just good to remember that people's time, like... It's not just like my time is valuable. Like, I actually really hate when people say my time is valuable and then they start multiplying their hourly rate or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> people, people's, time, people's time is valuable because they're human beings, right? Mm. Someone's time is valuable. You cannot, it's not easy to tell them you should just X. I think it's, good, it's fine to say to somebody, um, the, there is an assumption that this project has that you already know X skill in order to start. And it's, if you're clear about that, that's just fine, I think. But it's important to realize that it's not a tr- like whatever thing you're telling them is not always trivial. And again, I think that like the, when the when it's about your like physical life or like your ability to buy food or you know send your kid to after school programs or whatever, when it's that kind of thing, it's especially stark. But there's a sliding scale of this. Like every for every person in the world is who is trying to do something is frustrated. They're frustrated because time is not free from a human perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting.
So next, let's do some fill in the blanks. Are you ready? I am. Number one, worst advice I've ever received is. Yeah, I thought about this a little. I think the worst advice I ever received is、uh, when I first started programming and doing open source. So it is about coding, but it's not not entirely.、Uh, somebody said, "Why are you doing open source?" And I said, "Well," and I enumerated a bunch of things that I thought were good about open source. And he said, "Why don't instead of doing open source, you should just enumerate all those things and figure out ways to achieve each of those things separately." So, oh, you want to meet people? You should couchsurf. You want to learn programming? <laughs> no problem. You can like read a book. And I was,、hmm. and I basically was like, well, that is all true. First of all, I cannot even enumerate the, all the list of things because I don't know them. But second of all, there are certain kinds of things that are just much that are good at doing a lot of things together. And open source feels to me, I said at the time, and I now it is self evidently true as a thing that achieves the set of goals that you have much more efficiently than trying to do it separately. And、yeah. I think people just it, because of the fact that a lot of the things are small, like a lot of the benefits are small. People imagine like, oh, that is a waste of time, especially because it has a high cost of time.、Mm-hmm. But the combination of all the things that you get out of doing open source is much higher than the cost, like by far, by orders of magnitude. Right. Number two, my first coding project was about. So I already talked about this. It, it was the QBasic carnival program for my family.、And、Do they actually play it? Yep, I mean it、like、was it? The, it was the eighties.、Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, people played it. We liked it. I I actually took user feedback and made it better.、Um, nice. <laughs> but again, it didn't end up causing me to become a programmer.、Mm. Number three, one thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is. So we've also talked about this, but it's basically that、um, everybody doesn't know a lot of things at any given point in time, and not knowing something doesn't matter. Right, so you, at any point in time when you're programming, you if you're trying to learn something, you're trying to learn something that first of all a lot of other people have tried to learn before, and the diff like it's always I guess another way of saying this is every it's hard learning is always hard it's hard for everybody, so if you experience that learning something is hard, that doesn't say anything at all about yourself it just says that you're learning something and、um, you should it, you should not give up simply because it's hard. Yes, definitely. So next, let's do some shoutouts. Do you have a couple for us? Yep, I have two.、Uh, one of them is a book that Leia has written. She is CEO of Tilden. She、uh, runs EmberConf and ran Google before.、Um, the book is called、uh, Event Driven, and it's just a book about running events. And I would definitely recommend that anybody who runs events, including even little events like meetups, read it. It's extremely. It's not philosophical. It's extremely tactical, but it's. Chock full of tactical advice that you would not necessarily have arrived at on your own, and、uh, if you get to the end, like if you read through it, you'll find for sure things that you wouldn't have thought of, but are cheap and easy ways to accomplish things that you want to do. Oh, that is awesome! Because I was thinking to myself, you know, I see tons of blog posts on conference organizing and putting on meetups, and I always said to myself, man, there really should be a book about it. Because, like you said, I feel like. It's one of those things that you you don't really know what you don't know until you go through it yourself, and that's a very expensive way to know things. So I'm really excited about this book. I think a more general more general point, which is why I like it a lot, is that people, a lot of people, often think when they're first trying to do something, they have like a very yagni, you ain't gonna need it attitude, which、mm-hmm. is ba- which is basically like, oh, I can either do. I can do this, and then someone will tell them, oh, you should actually do this other thing instead. It's better, and they'll say, ah, it seems too hard. 
But a lot of the time, the thing that someone is telling you is better doesn't actually take more time. It's just that you haven't learned it yet. And, and yes. that's, and, and I think there's so many cases of that, but event planning is, enough, is one of these cases where the amount of time it takes to do a good job versus a bad job is approximately the same amount of time. It's just yes. that you have to have done the right set of things. So that actually reminds me of when I was in school, I was a psychology major. And when I was in school, we learned about a study where there was a task someone had to do on the computer, some very basic administrative type task. But in order to do it, they had to learn some new tool. And the person being studied was given the choice of, you know, learn the new tool and do it in half the time or don't learn the tool and just do it the way you were doing it, which will take twice as long. And most people chose the way to do it. And when they were asked, they said, oh, I just don't want to go through the process of having to learn the new thing. You know, just the, the learning of it was just such a, a mental barrier that even though it was more efficient, they didn't want to do it. I mean, a, a, a concrete example of this in the book and, and my second shout out is related to the same thing, actually, a programming version of this. Uh, the second example, the example from the book is talking about how you're supposed to do registration. So um, you, in order, how do you, you have a thousand, let's say Ember Conf is a thousand people. How do you get all the people their, their badges? So one of the things that she suggests is if you have a speaker's dinner, give out the things there. You can do early registration. So let, imagine you have training the day before, just set up a booth before and just give everybody the badges if they happen to show up earlier, which is a much longer period of time. Um, and this year we started giving out an extra swag item if you show up. So it's like an eight hour oh. registration, right? And we gave mm-hmm. out socks this year. Um, nice. Oh, I love socks. But these things don't, you already have the training. Your human being already had to be there. Um, and you already had, like, you already have a speaker's dinner. So these are things that don't actually really cost more time. You, you just have to know about it. And then once you do it, it just actually saves you effort. But you just have to know, mm-hmm. right? You just have yes. to know that it's a thing. So my second shout out is TypeScript. Um, TypeScript is also a thing that people feel, they feel like it's going to be scary. Uh, certainly I am, I have Ruby most of my career in JavaScript. Uh, so static typing feels scary. So it seems easy to imagine that if you use TypeScript, it will use a lot of time. But, um, TypeScript has been very careful about uh, allowing you to only use types in place, parts of your code where you need, need it. Uh, the payoff is pretty high, both in terms of tooling and error avoidance. And, um, I'm not saying everybody should use TypeScript everywhere, but I'm saying it's worth knowing it. Um, it's worth knowing it because there are certain kinds of problems that are sort of deeper problems where it's very valuable to know, to clearly communicate to yourself and other programmers what it is that you're doing beyond comments and um, the value is high and it ju- it's just learning. And I, so I think it's, I think it's a tool worth learning, worth having in your tool belt. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, and for the, the book about events, what is the name of it and where can people uh, find it? It's called Event Driven and I will give you a link. Awesome. So I have a couple of personal shout outs. One is called Outreachy, which is a program that I heard about at OSCON. I was going over to, I think it was the the open source communities section. I'm not sure if that's the right name. And I met a bunch of really, really awesome people that I'm hoping to have on the podcast sometime soon. But one of those awesome people is Tony Sebro. Hopefully I'm saying his name right. And he works for the Software Freedom Conservancy. And he was telling me about a program called Outreachy, where they help people from underrepresented groups get involved in free and open source uh, contributions. And so they work with a number of really, really great awesome open source projects, and they provide help and support and mentorship, uh, and I think matching as well. And it's an application process, but it is awesome. And if you are interested in 
uh, and getting into open source and you're looking for a way in, this is a really great way to do it. The program is also entirely remote and you get a stipend, you get 5,500 bucks. So trying to make it a little bit easier, a little bit more doable for people to contribute their time and to get involved in open source. So definitely check out Outreachy. And if you're not an applicant, consider donating. They have a donation button on their website and they're doing really great stuff. My second shout out is, so Kat Small, who is a... I don't know what to call her. She does so many things. She does UX. She does game development. She's a developer. And we actually had her on episode 22 of the podcast called Intro to UX. And she recently launched a personal newsletter. And I know a bunch of people have personal newsletters. And I subscribe to a good number of them. And hers is just awesome. It's so, so awesome. She has a little section at the very beginning where she talks about what she's been up to and gives you a little update on her life, which is exciting because she does a bunch of events and speaking and teaching and a lot of coding. So lots of fun stuff to hear about. But she also has a section at the bottom that I loved where she gives shout outs to different people and their projects and opportunities. And it's just a really great way to learn a little bit more about what other people are working on and to hear about opportunities that you might not otherwise hear about. So definitely check out her newsletter, subscribe, and I will put it on our website so you can take a look. And my third and final shout out is Skylight which I had the pleasure of getting a demo for at RailsConf uh, by, I think it was by your brother. Is that right? Seems, seems possible. Yeah. And he was, he was, first of all, he's awesome. I really like him. I hope I get to hang out with him at some point. But um, yeah, I was, you know, he was giving me a tour and I kept mentioning a problem that I had with the system that we use now and he would just instantly show me a solution for it. So I'm very excited about Skylight. I'm definitely going to download it and use it for our own monitoring for our CodeNubie site. And there are two big things that I like about that I know you spent a lot of time on. One is just the interface. It's really pretty and not pretty in a superficial way, but it just it feels very approachable and easy to navigate. And when we talk about a monitoring system, an analytic system, anything along those lines, it can be, especially to a newer person, it can be instantly intimidating, just automatically intimidating when you see charts and numbers that you're trying to understand and the way it was laid out and simplified. And it was just, it just felt like it was something that I could understand. So thank you for all the time that you put into the design and the interface. Yeah, I want to thank the team, of course. I Everybody mm -hmm. else spends way more time on it than I do, and they do awesome work. Yeah. And the second thing I really like about it is, you know, when I get all the, the reports on Code Newbie, I look at it and I go, so what am I supposed to do with this? And it just feels like a lot of data, and it's a whole other task, a Herculean effort to figure out what to do with it. And Skylight is very good about giving you actions and giving you recommendations on what to do. So definitely check it out. Thanks. If you want to join the conversation, you can join us on Code Newbie Discourse, our online forum for people excited about code, or you can chat with us every week on the Code Newbie Twitter chat. Just search for hashtag Code Newbie and tweet with us every Wednesday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can learn more about that as well as show notes on this episode at codenewbie.org slash podcast. If there's a topic you want to hear about or a guest you want to hear from, send us an email, hello at codenewbie.org. Thank you again, Yehuda, so much for joining us. You want to say goodbye? Bye. Thanks for listening. See you next week.